from The Advocate magazine in partnership with GLAAD. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ and A. Angela Chen has written one of those books that shocked me by showing me just how much I did not understand about something. That something, in this case, is asexuality. It is a word that all of us know, but I believe do not understand the full meaning of. People who are asexual do not experience sexual attraction. And that's easy enough to define, right? Yes, but also no. As you will hear, asexuality encompasses an incredibly broad range of experiences, and Angela Chen is here today to talk all about it. She is the author of the new book, Ace, What Asexuality Reveals About Desire, Society, and the Meaning of Sex. Ace is another word for asexual, so just a heads up there, you will hear us use those two words interchangeably. So without further ado, here's Angela Chen. In the book, you do a really incredible job of giving the asexuality 101 that is necessary without dumbing it down or oversimplifying anything. I think for me, my biggest takeaway, and it sounds obvious in hindsight, but my biggest takeaway is how many different ways there are to be asexual. And I hate to say it, but I did not know that it was this umbrella term that encompasses such a broad range of experiences. Do you find that that is a common misconception? It is so common. And, you know, there's part of me that's like, come on, everyone. Like, you know, it's been a while. Like, we should be caught up. But there's this other part of me that is so, so sympathetic. And I think some of it has to do with language, right? Because asexual, it's not a word someone made up. You know, your, people already have associations with it. So it's just not intuitive that you would call someone who maybe has positive sexual experiences asexual, right? Just on a semantic level, people are like, what does that mean? So I totally understand why people would not understand it's an umbrella term, would not intuitively know that there's such a diverse range of experiences under that. But also, I feel like it is time for us to be having that conversation and moving away from that one image of asexuality. Even for people who think they know what it means, they think it means like, oh, you just don't like sex or you're repulsed by sex. But it's so much more than that. That's such a great point. Before reading the book, I would have told you that asexual people do not have any desire for sex or romantic relationships. And that is the case for some, but in no means the entire community. Community. Do you mind just like giving us like the definition that like we should be like thinking of for asexuality? Absolutely. So the official definition is asexuality means you don't experience sexual attraction, which seems simple enough, right? But then you have to be like, okay, what is sexual attraction? And most people mean think it means, oh, you just are repulsed by sex, you don't want to have sex. But sexual attraction is not the only reason to have sex, right? You know, the example I always use, which I don't love this metaphor, but I always use the food metaphor. It's like there's foods that you love and you're like attracted to, quote unquote. There's foods you're repulsed by. And then there's some foods that like they taste fine, but because you associate them with like your best friends in college and like that social scene, you know, like there's like an emotional reason. Well, I won't speak for you. I'm an emotional eater, right? So I feel like there's all these nuances there to make it really simple. It's possible to not experience sexual attraction without being repulsed by sex, to be basically sex indifferent. But because there's so many other reasons to have sex, you know, emotional reasons, like you might be bored or you really love someone or you want to feel attractive and desired and sexy, that can hide for many people their own asexuality. And that's where it gets into all of these nuances and all of these complexities. I think for so many 
people in the queer community, we first began to discover and understand our sexual orientation through sexual attraction only. To oversimplify it, right? I'm sexually attracted to men. I must be gay. Without that component, can you talk about how you experience attraction and like what you base those feelings on? Yeah, and that's something that's really complicated. So one thing with asexuality is that in some ways, the orientation is based around what you don't experience. So then you have to kind of explain, like, what is it you don't experience, which is this weird, like, philosophical question, right? So for me, like, when I feel attracted to someone in this romantic sense, it's basically like having a crush on them, right? Um, Like, I want to date them, like, I could see us being romantic partners. And I even have an aesthetic type, you know? I always say, like, do not get me wrong, I have a type. It's not like everyone looks the same to me. Some people are hot, some people are less hot, you know, don't get me wrong. But But there's not like a sexual motivation for it. And I think that can be really, really hard for people to feel out and understand because there can be so many nuances. And I also want to make clear that being asexual is not the same as being aromantic because sex and romance aren't the same, right? I think most people would agree. So many people are asexual and they are, say, heteroromantic or they are panromantic or biromantic. And there are some people who are asexual who are aromantic, meaning that they just don't experience romantic attraction to others. Though, of course, they you know might love their friends or their family very much. It's so interesting compared to non-asexual people to have to come out of the closet because we can discuss our sexuality by talking about like broader terms like dating and relationships. And yet you coming out as asexual have to discuss sex. Sex has to be in the conversation. Does that pose challenges like say parents when you don't want to talk about sex with them? Yeah, absolutely. So the funny thing is my parents just don't know what the book is about. It's funny because if you Google my name, like the book's going to come up within two seconds, it'll say on the jacket copy, you know, in her own experience as an asexual journalist. But I'm just not out to my parents in part because it just it really feels like I'd be talking to them about my sex life in a way that I don't think it would be the case if I weren't asexual or were bisexual, for example. And I've talked to other aces about it and they've said the same thing where it feels almost more inappropriate. You know, like they say, I work in kind of a conservative, you know, not hyper conservative, but a little bit of a conservative workplace. And it feels like if I were to talk about my asexuality, it just seems much, it is not done there, you know, the way it might be okay to talk about other orientations. Right, because like marriage equality passed for many reasons, but one of them is because we reframed it to be about love and relationships and we moved it away from sex. But for asexuality, we don't actually have that option. Did it take a while for you to become comfortable with that label for yourself? Absolutely. And I think in many ways, I still feel I still feel some ambivalence about it. You know, I like talking to other aces and other people in the queer community because I feel like I can be more honest. You know, there are people who still say asexuality doesn't exist. You're just repressed or maybe there's something physically, medically wrong with you. And because there's so many naysayers, of course, there is this pressure to dig your heels in and be like, not only am I asexual, I love being asexual 24-7. It's the best thing in the world because you don't want to give them any room to invalidate you, right? And so I think when I'm with people who are queer or who are ace, there's more room to be like, there's great things about it. And in some ways, I've internalized some anti-ace sentiment and sometimes I feel ambivalent about it. So it's a long process. I mean, you mentioned like saying, I love being ace and like having to say that. It took me like 10 years after I came out to be able to say like, I love being queer and to actually mean it. Do you feel that way? Do you love being ace? I don't know if I love being ace. I think I'm at the point in my life where I 
don't reject it. I don't think I ever rejected it in the sense that I ever thought, oh, um, there's something wrong with it. But I always thought it was maybe something that was inconvenient, you know, like it wasn't inherently wrong, but maybe be better if I, if I wasn't that way. So I wouldn't say that I love it even now, but I think I'm getting much closer to it the more ace people I know. And honestly, having written the book, having thought through all of these things much more in much more detail than before when I was just like, okay, this is a thing. This is what I am. I mean, one of the things that you wrote was that in our public imagination, the opposite of sex positive and sexually liberated is sexually repressed. And that is an insult. It is a bad thing. And I never like thought about that dichotomy before, just because for the queer community, gay liberation was like a part of the sexual liberation movement. And it's a part of our celebrated history to be sex positive. And not only to be sex positive, but to like go to bathhouses and fuck like animals. <laughs> it ingrained in our culture that that is kind of like the base level for all humans. Does that sound crazy? No, I don't think it sounds crazy. And I think that's part of what makes asexuality's place politically, especially in the queer community, so complicated and nuanced. You know, as I was writing this, I do think that we don't need to make these assumptions that everyone, you know, loves sex or needs to love sex, or that if you don't love sex, then you're sexually repressed or sexually conservative. You know, I think sexual variation exists. Some people have higher sex drives, some people have lower sex drives. But because, you know, queer people have been shamed so much, it, it's so hard to make that argument without feeling like you're you're the enemy, like you're trying to shame people again, that you're trying to tell people to not do what they want to do. Like, it's really about removing pressures and this kind of normalization of a certain level of sexuality when there should be a multiplicity of, you know, different types of sexuality and sexual behavior and sexual desire. But I think it can be really hard to make that argument without sounding like you're just a prude, really, um, without sounding like you just don't want people to enjoy having sex, which is not the case. Right. Because it's so easy to think, oh, I don't participate in sex parties or have any desire for orgies. And so thusly, I am defective. Exactly. Like wh what has been done to me? You know, how have I been conditioned? And I think this is often very true, especially for people who are female, you know, because it is true that often the patriarchy has made women sexually repressed. So there's always this questioning, oh, what what have men done to me to make me not want to have sex parties and not want to have lots of partners? And sometimes definitely it is the patriarchy and is that kind of control. But sometimes it's just people are different and it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't always mean that not wanting sex or not loving sex means that there's something wrong with you or that you need to deprogram yourself. I was thinking of it in terms of we've recently reclaimed the word introvert. That's like a cool word. It's not a bad thing anymore. I was thinking about like people being like sexually introverted. That is okay to like lean more in that way. Yeah, I, I like that idea. I also think it's such a complicated place because I'm talking about the strain of like sex positivity, sex normativity, but at the same time, of course, purity culture exists. Of course, sex shaming exists, right? How do we talk about being sexually introverted and kind of reclaim that without being moralistic, without edging into purity culture without edging into being, you know, shaming in some way. That is something that we need to, we being aces, need to think about carefully. You know, queer people, we, we get to decide what cultural norms to buy into, what our relationships look like, what our sex looks like. And in that sense, to me, like asexuality is like the queerest possible thing to reject our society's norms in terms of sex and attraction. 
Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I think one point I made in the book is that I don't think asexuality is inherently progressive. Like, I don't really think most things are inherently progressive, but I think asexuality is also a movement, you know? And I think that those values there about how you can, we don't need to have sexual normalcy, like, and you don't have to have sex to, you know, have a good life and you can find eroticism and joy in areas beyond the sexual. Like, I think that is super interesting and super radical. And you wrote in the book that you date primarily outside of the ACE community. Does that mean that you were constantly having to educate like, your partners about what that means? Sort of. So my first partner, I dated before I knew that I was ACE. And, you know, to be clear, though, I'm ACE. I'm not celibate. I'm also not sex repulsed. And so for many ways, I feel like I essentially pass as being allosexual, which is, you know, non-asexual. With my second partner, I was coming into understanding my asexuality while we were together. And I think that caused, caused is such a negative word, but I think that led to a lot of discussions about, you know, what does this mean? You know, like, does that mean you were faking or does that mean that you were lying when, or do you not enjoy having sex with me? What does that mean for his self-esteem? What did that mean for me? Like there were a lot of these kinds of discussions, like very personal, specific to us, more so than the like 101 of like, is asexuality. And my third partner, I already knew that I was ace. So it was a more continuation of that. I have to say that I've never been able to successfully date while ace. I basically just turn friends into partners. I don't know how to do the usual uh, method of dating that's so common nowadays. And I think that's a challenge for many people who are asexual. Okay. But also I think that turning friends into partners is like one of the most successful way to have a good partnership. <laughs> oh, I totally agree. But at some point I'm like, do I have enough friends? You know, like am I running out of friends to, to, to pull from the pool of, which is a very mercenary way to think about things. In terms of sexual incompatibility, in your research, do you find any couples who have navigated that successfully? I have. I mean, it kind of it kind of depends what you mean by successfully, right? So I found couples who are still together, and I think for them, successful means that they've compromised and they've just accepted it. I think that when it comes to sexual incompatibility, there is a real bias in how we think about it. Sex therapy, it's all about fixing the lower desire of the broken partner. There's this attitude often that the lower desire partner is the one who has the problem and so they should do all the work and basically just somehow make themselves want sex more. Even for me, like when I think about asking the lower desire partner, like you should have more sex, that feels more natural to me than asking the higher desire partner, like maybe you should try having less sex, you know, like just doing these thought experiments in your mind, I think really makes it clear that there is a bias and we really do see low sexual desire as, as a problem of one person instead of as a problem of compatibility. You know, if two people had the exact same level of low desire or high desire, it wouldn't be a problem. But when there's a mismatch, I think most times we think it's a lower you know, desire partner's fault. But there have been people who have been able to make it work. For some, it involves open relationships, even though, of course, even open relationships, you need to keep having these conversations so you don't become resentful. For some, I think it's involved accepting that maybe, sure, sex is a source of stress and they're not super sexually compatible, but all the other things about relationships are worth it for them. Going back a second, you said in the interview, and you wrote about this in the book, about how you are not sex repulsed. You have have had sex and enjoy sex, and you also identify as asexual. Can you just connect those things for our listeners? To so many people, I think that that is like a surprising combination of like words. Can you like help us like talk through that for people who have not read the book? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's just that, like I said, there's so many reasons to have sex beyond like 
physical attraction beyond basically horniness, right? You know, for me, like I will want to be close to a partner and I will enjoy having sex and, but there will never be a need for me. Like I literally never think about sex in my everyday life. You know, as a teenager, I would talk to my friends and they would be like, oh, he's so hot. And I'd be like, yeah, he's hot. But like we were experiencing different things. Like she was experiencing horniness basically. And I was like, oh, he has good bone structure and I like his haircut. You know, it's it's a very different way of experiencing the world. Like I just, it's just never a part of the way I think about the world. It's never something I factor in. My friends always used to make fun of me. They'd be like, you just cannot tell when anyone's flirting with you. You just like don't give off like sexual vibes. You know, to me, like it's about so much more than whether I have sex or not. It's about sex being part of the fabric of the way that you look at the world and the way that you interpret the world. And I think that once I realized I was asexual, other people had this like extra variable in their equations. It was almost like putting on a new pair of glasses and being like, oh, that makes sense. I, I think too, like one of the metaphors you use in the book that struck me is that we we are so comfortable and accept the concept of a one night stand, which is purely sexual and not romantic. But we have a really hard time as a culture and society with the reverse of that, something that is purely purely romantic, but not sexual. To us, like, we have a hard time, like, computing those things. Like, well, why would you want that? And yet, like, the answer, too, is, like, look at some close friendships. Absolutely. And it's not even just why would you want that? People think it doesn't exist. I think so often when there's close friendships, people are like, oh, you're secretly, you just secretly want a bone. Or you're, like, in denial about it. But why can't we just be you know, why can't it just be that it's a close friendship and it can be just as passionate and as, you know, full of this energy without being sexual? Again, going back to language and the way that we think sexuality is like a shorthand for passion and excitement. In the book, I write about how if you even do a thesaurus, you know, search for the word like passionate, everything is like sultry, sexy, you know, why can't we think and make room for different kinds of energies that aren't sexual? I think oftentimes with just words in general, they're so broad, like friend can cover everyone from like your groomsmen at your wedding to like your Twitter mutual, right? And those two are not the same, but because we use the same word, it's almost like we're collapsing all of these specific details of what the relationship is like. And when we collapse those, I think we don't think about them as carefully and that makes life lose some of its richness. I want to stay on the topic of labels and words for a second. We were talking about the queer community. Do you identify as queer? I identify as queer, but I think I very much struggle with the idea of not being queer enough. And I think that's not because I'm ace. Um, You know, I identified as bisexual before I was biromantic. And there I also was like, am I I queer enough? I also think that asexuality specifically, it feels to me almost conditional place in the queer community. I believe that aces are queer, but I think there sometimes has been this discussion about whether... Um, heteromantic aces who are essentially straight passing should be considered queer, should be part of the umbrella. And I don't know if that's been fully resolved in the sense that I think people are still kind of talking about this up for debate, even though I personally, you know, think that they should. It's complicated. You know, can I tell you, before I emailed you to talk, because I thought the book sounded so interesting, I first Googled to see if you were queer. And then I realized, oh, that is my own bias. Aces are part of the queer community. It doesn't matter if they only date the opposite sex, but that is something that I definitely had to check myself on and get over for myself. 
And I get that. And I have that myself. And the thing is, I have dated women. So even if I wasn't. That is not a part of your bio. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, in some ways, like in my insecure moments, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm still queer. I'm still here. But it's very real for aces. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of heteromantic aces. And I think they all say the same thing, which is like, you know, we're not saying that our struggle is the same. You know, if you're heteromantic and you're walking with a partner, you are straight passing. And, you know, we're not trying to take resources away from every from anyone. And the other thing I think almost every heteromantic ace I talk to says is they're like, I totally support other heteromantic aces identifying as queer. I personally feel a little uncomfortable about it. I don't know if I should. Um, will I be welcome? So there's very much the like, you can do it, but like maybe I personally don't belong kind of idea. I found it really interesting that we have an online record of the naming of the asexual community. There were terms like non-sexual and anti-sexual. Was it specifically chosen to have this term to anchor it within a sexuality? Yeah. At the beginning of the asexual movement, so this is the early 2000s, there were a lot of discussions about what it meant to be asexual. And, you know, in the beginning, it was kind of like celibacy. It was mostly about behavior, like, oh, I don't have sex. I also don't want sex. And there were all of these, like, kind of side conversations about, oh, if you masturbate, are you still asexual? Or, you know, is that, does that disqualify you? And eventually, I think the decision was to make it based on attraction, because that's the way all the other orientations kind of worked, right? And so it felt like this was a sexual orientation. It felt like this should be something that could be a coalition building and a way to be part of the greater LGBT community. So I think it was very strategic. I always thought that was interesting because the movement has been around for 20 years, but that's still recent enough that it's still growing and it's still very much evolving quickly. And yet we can still see how strategic everything was at the beginning. The way you describe that really makes sense in terms of it being a sexuality, because we can have a straight dude that you know sucks a dick and he can still be straight. You know, It's not about behavior in that sense too. Exactly. And I mean, the thing is, there are plenty of people who have sex with people they're not sexually attracted to. You know, that's just that's not like an ace thing that I think is very, very common. I think so often people will hear about ace terms and they'll be like, ah, interesting, a new idea. And I'm like, but that's not new. Like, I know what you did last week. There's this idea called the undirected sex drive. Right. And basically aces use it to describe why like some aces do masturbate like they just basically feel the desire for sexual release but it's not there's no attraction toward a person like one woman said it's like if there's like a mosquito bite in your arm and you want to scratch it because it itches but like you wouldn't be like hey can you come over and scratch this mosquito bite for me there's no need to get anyone else involved which makes sense to me and then when i explain that people are like oh that like makes sense it's an ace thing i'm like no it's called being horny like many people can be horny and you know, even when they don't have like a particular person around that they're thinking of or attracted to. So it's just interesting to me how like some of these ideas, which are very common, almost become like are seen as these like niche ideas. Right. There were so many people in the book that were non-binary. And it makes sense like to have like given up this societal norm for relationships to also like your one's own gender. Was that something that you knew going into it, though, before the book? I knew that there were a lot of people in the community who were um, trans and non-binary. I was surprised by the amount of people that I talked to who were non-binary. But as I spoke to them, it made sense. I'm not non-binary, I'm cis. But many people said that for them, like, so many things felt related. They were like, oh, they, they were kind of questioning their gender. And then 
I think gender and sexuality are often very connected and then they will also kind of question their sexuality. And one person said something like, to them, asexuality was like the most clear idea of how they were quote unquote different. And once they understood that, it was like unlocking these other identities. You know, once they were like, oh, I'm asexual, it, it helped them understand like, oh, maybe I'm not whatever gender that was assigned to me. And so, yeah, I think the way that gender and sexuality combine and once you kind of unhook one of them, it can be easier to like kind of question and unhook many other things. You know, I worked in the online fitness world for a number of years, and a question I had going into the book was about sex drive, because we operated under the understanding that if you had a low sex drive, that something was wrong, just like physiologically. And I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think now like the more nuanced understanding is if you have a change in your sex drive that's immediate, that is like not lifelong, but what we're talking about is an identity, that something that doesn't just happen overnight in your 30s, right? Yeah, you know, it's complicated. I think this is a place where the discussion is still changing because of course there are things that happen that can affect your sex drive that aren't necessarily lifelong or identity, like pregnancy and childbirth often affects, you know, sex drive. Of course, medications and antidepressants can, regular depression can, you know, dampen your sex drive. And so, you know, in the early days of asexuality, it really was thought of as less like lifelong thing. Like as a child, I was like this. When I'm old, I'll be like this. But I think in recent years, the way of thinking about asexuality has become more fluid, you know, just as like we're talking more about spectrums instead of binaries. And, I think we're talking more about the fluidity of various types of identity. And so I think the goal of asexuality doesn't need to be so much gatekeeping around, like, if you maybe felt sexual attraction once in your life, you're like not a really sexual. Like the political goal is to show that even if you don't have sexual desire, sexual attraction, like life can be wonderful and worth living and you can find all of these great things otherwise. And I think that doesn't really depend on whether it's lifelong. It doesn't depend on why you don't experience sexual attraction. And I also think that I have a lot of empathy for people who maybe experience sexual attraction and they lost and they want to regain that. Like, I think that's fine. And I don't think that's against what sexual, what the ACE movement is about. I think the ace movement is just you're not broken if you're different. And it's not, again, like everything we're saying, it's not black and white, where if you have a decreased sex drive, it, it could be a biological, physical issue going on in your body, and it could not be. Yeah. It's like, it's both answers. Yeah. For so many people, though, sex is tied to reproduction, you know, for the most part, reproduction. Having no sexual attraction, do you find that there's a correlation and what colors one's desire to have or not have kids? I don't think so for me personally. I think throughout my life, I have just gone back and forth on this question. Like when I was younger, I was like, no. And then in my first relationship, I was like, maybe. And now I'm back to the childcare system is messed up. So probably no. But for me, I don't think it has, it, that's been part of that for me, uh, in part because I'm not sex repulsed. So like the question of like, could I get pregnant or anything like that is not relevant for me. I think what might be a bigger question for many people is just finding partners and then finding people to raise children with. It's more like the family structure can be the bigger challenge. You know, when I have a big writing project or a big interview, I walk around all day thinking about the subject. While you're working on the book, were you just walking around all day thinking about sex? 
First, no, because I have a day job. So I walked around all day thinking about my day job. And second of all, it's weird to be someone who's asexual writing about sex because I am a science journalist. I'm a tech journalist. That's what I cover. I'm not primarily like a sex, gender, culture writer. And I think I was the right person to write this book and I'm proud of it in many ways. But there was always a sense of like, I'm asexual and yet I have to write a book about sex. Like, of course, of course, this is how it turned out. That's so funny. I think that's an amazing place to leave it on too. Thank you so much for talking to us. This was really fantastic. Thanks so much for having me on. And that was Angela Chen. Her new book out right now is called Ace, What Asexuality Reveals About Desire, Society, and the Meaning of Sex. If you enjoyed our conversation and are not yet subscribed, please hit the subscribe or follow button right now. We'll be back next week with Lily Reinhardt, one of the stars of Riverdale on CW. She plays Betty Cooper, and it's a really, really great conversation. You do not want to miss it, so hit subscribe. And while you're there, please rank us five stars and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts. There have been a lot of new reviews lately from people like Chris Arjona, Sir Dice, and Charlie Saturn. Doing things like that are really huge ways you can help us continue to grow. So thank you so much to them and everyone else who's done that. We're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. Come check out all of our amazing work at advocate.com and GLAAD.org. All right, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I will see you next week. Goodbye.